to the Shorenstein Center on Media, Politics, and Public Policy at the Harvard Kennedy School. For more on events, news, and research, visit us at shorensteincenter.org. I'm Alex Jones. I'm director of the Shorenstein Center on Media, Politics, and Public Policy, and welcome to you all. Um, as you know, one of the things that uh, we take great pride in is our is our speaker series, and we try to have a lot of uh, variety and a lot of uh, provocative speakers, and today certainly is no exception. Uh, Marion Elder is a very experienced journalist who has served, you know, terms in uh, in Russia, uh, worked for The Guardian, done an awful lot of very serious and very sort of uh, I would say mainstream uh, journalism, highly respected journalism. She is now the foreign editor of BuzzFeed. Uh, BuzzFeed is a very, very high traffic website that has journalism as one of its purposes, but not the only one, certainly. Um, And it was interesting, just before we came here, we were talking about where what Miriam does fits into the BuzzFeed sort of scheme, and I hope we'll be able to talk about that a bit. She has uh, done a great deal of work on, as I say, Russia, and that is something that uh, uh, is of great interest today, certainly. Uh, Miriam, we're very glad to have you, and the floor is yours, and then we will have questions after. If I could ask you to turn off your cell phones, and uh, when we get to the questions, if you would identify yourselves. Thank you. Mary? Thanks so much for having me. Um, I'll keep my remarks pretty short, and uh, I love questions, so the more, the better. Um, So, yeah, I worked in Russia for a really long time, um, lastly for The Guardian, uh, and was approached by BuzzFeed um, just over a year ago, and they said, we're going to launch a foreign section, and we'd love you to be the head of it. And media changes... uh, they hit across the ocean uh, a lot later than they do, you know, in New York uh, or in the U.S. in general. So I knew BuzzFeed from my Facebook feed as a purveyor of cats, which I love, <laughs> and lists, which, you know, was, were necessary to relax with <laughs> after uh, spending the day reporting in Russia. But, um, you know, it wasn't the sort of thing where I said, yeah, I'll, I'll go do this right away. Um, it was, it was, yeah, it was interesting to be approached. And um, we have this, uh, an editor-in-chief who spoke here, I think, last, last fall, mm-hmm. last year, Ben Smith, uh, who came from Politico and kind of uh, used the last presidential cycle to really launch a, a very serious uh, high-speed politics uh, section at BuzzFeed. And he himself had some reporting experience abroad. He'd, uh, he was a stringer for the journal uh, in Latvia, did some stuff in Belarus had a personal interest in it, and then also saw that there was a, it was a natural expansion. Um, one of the thinking behind BuzzFeed is that um, kind of like page one is dead, which is a quote that comes from the New York Times Innovation Report, which I don't know if any of you read, uh, that came out uh, earlier this year about how, how to approach news on the Internet. And the idea is that kids these days uh, don't really go to... NewYorkTimes.com. Don't go to Guardian.co.uk. Uh, don't go to the journals site. They the first thing they do is go to Facebook and Twitter, and that's where they then find their news. And about 75% of our traffic comes from social media. 
And if you look at how foreign stories play out on social media, uh, there's a really particular thing about it. I think we saw it a lot during the Arab Spring, where um, in order to bypass press controls in, in countries that have them, I saw it in Russia reporting on the anti-Putin protests there, where the news wasn't really making, uh, it wasn't making the TV news that's controlled by the Kremlin, it wasn't making a lot of the major newspapers. And when it was making it, it wasn't making it in a really meaningful way. So people just go directly to, to Twitter to kind of to get their message out. And it just made sense to, to capitalize on, on that and that interest in foreign news that you see in social media and to devote a section to that. So I started BuzzFeed World last August. We have uh, two reporters in the Middle East, one between Cairo and Tel Aviv, uh, one in Istanbul who focuses on Syria and Iraq. Uh, we have uh, someone in Kiev. We have a international. Oh, and this is, well. So one thing that I really like that we've done is we've uh, we've opened these thematic beats, trying to think of like new ways to cover the world. So we have a an international LGBT rights reporter based out of DC who did a great story on Egypt today. He'll be going uh, to Eastern Europe pretty soon. He's done wonderful reporting from uh, Jamaica, from Uganda. And then we have an international women's rights reporter who's based in Nairobi, uh, who now is kind of uh, <laughs> covering Ebola all the time because uh, it's such a huge story. But uh, I don't know that's been a really interesting way to, to think of new ways to cover the world beyond just regional beats. Um, and uh, yeah, so I guess you know uh, the question that I get a lot of the time is um, how different is it to work for BuzzFeed versus The Guardian, a more legacy media organization? And uh, I find this, the similarities to, to exist a lot more than the differences. Um, at the end of the day, it's, what we do is uh, meet people and pick up phones, <laughs> which is uh, a lot of you know, what reporting is. Uh, and I guess what we focus on at BuzzFeed is, I'm going to use a really like cliched sentence, but it's kind of like putting the new back in news, I guess. So there's this idea that every story that we do has to push things forward a little bit because that's the only way that BuzzFeed is, uh, is I'm going to have a drink, sorry, is really going to break through. Mm. So the example that, um, that I often use is, I don't know if you remember when Vladimir Putin wrote an op-ed for the New York Times about Syria just about a year ago. And... You had a lot of the news organizations, um, from AP to The Guardian to everybody in between, writing an article saying, you know, Vladimir Putin pens op-ed for New York Times. And I see zero point in a story like that, because the way that we get news now is from the internet, and anybody can go to NewYorkTimes.com and see the splash, and they click on the op-ed and they read the op-ed. Uh, so what we did is we got our reporter in D.C., Rosie Gray, who focuses on the State Department and um, foreign lobbying and just foreign policy out of D.C. in general. And uh, she found out that this uh, D.C. PR firm named Ketchum had placed the ad and that they were insisting that Vladimir Putin wrote the op-ed himself. So we just got this like little piece of news. There was this massive story going around, but rather than just kind of writing the obvious, just always try to push it with some, with some uh, unique and meaningful uh, angle. Um, and so, yeah, I don't know, I'd just love to hear your questions, really. I'll get to ask the first one, if you don't mind. <laughs> uh, and then we will open it up. But the uh, first uh, first people who get to answer questions, or ask questions, I should say, are students. So we'll do that first, and fellows and such. Um, what is the future, though, of, uh, of foreign news 
as you view it? I mean, you've been at one of the, the legacy news organizations. Um, you're now at BuzzFeed. Does a BuzzFeed aspire to be something comparable to The Guardian in a journalistic kind of sense? Is it something that, is that the ambition of BuzzFeed? Yeah, I won't compare us to any news organization in particular, but definitely the approach that we have, that I have on my desk, that the politics desk has, that is um, is hiring reporters to do the work. So I think what's happened with a lot of uh the way we've seen kind of the evolution of media is there was a big aggregation phase mm-hmm. when you had like the Huffington Post and this, that, and the other. Um, yeah, just doing a lot of aggregation and those, those, you know, everybody would do the same story. It would be like 20 outlets doing the exact same story. And what we're doing is a lot more old school, which is hiring reporters to live in the countries and do the work. Right now I'm hiring, I'm expanding, I'm doubling my desk, so looking for a reporter in China and Mexico, um, and beyond that, um, so yeah. It's a wonderful concept that you use old school for BuzzFeed, I mean, <laughs> for, for that kind of journalism, because you're right. Having bureaus, having people on the ground is very expensive, and it's uh, not necessarily the most efficient way, and that's what a lot of these news organizations are looking for. But it is where you get new insights and breaking, you know, a, a breaking new way of looking at something. Mm-hmm. Can you think of a place now that really cries out for that that is really particularly neglected? Um, I mean, I would say most of the world. You know, the, um, yeah, I'm, I'm really excited about getting a reporter in China, which isn't undercovered as such, but um, we're hoping to cover it, I don't know, in, in hopefully a, a kind of a new way. And to also, you know, explain this country. The nice thing about the nice thing about BuzzFeed is that we do have the division is often, you know, the cats and the lists, and uh, and then the serious news, which isn't necessarily a totally fair division. I do like the kind of the the layout, for example, of a lot of of a lot of the entertainment uh, coverage, and there's a there's a humanity that comes from that. So we can, you know, just the difficulties of doing Vox Pops in China uh, aside, you know, go out and kind of meet people and just do these, like, snapshots of life, I think, in a way that will hopefully, like, humanize the country to a lot of American readers who kind of just see it as, you know, the rise of evil China. Two of the uh, fellows that we have this this semester at the Shorenstein Center, one is working on, focused on Turkey, and one is focused on Russia. Mm. Those are one place you have direct experience, another where you have one of your one of your reporters. Mm. When you look at those, the media climates in those two countries, which are, you know, from all appearances, uh, pretty pretty grim. Mm-hmm. Is that the way you see it, or how does your own sort of reporting and your own sort of uh, representative how do how do you how do they function in a place like Turkey right now, given the kind of of uh, pressure that the New York Times reporter was under. I'm sure you mm-hmm. kept track of that. Mm-hmm. How does it work in Russia with a, the kind of antagonism now that people are reporting for um, um, especially American and American-based uh, news organizations? Well, and this is it's an interesting question, and I think there's a particular Internet aspect to that, <laughs> which is something that you do see in China and that we're starting to see, like, this disturbing trend uh, in other countries around the world, which is... Um, they just kind of say, we don't accredit uh, online news organizations. 
we don't have the legislation to understand what to do with online news organizations. And I think that it's an excuse that's being used to, you know, to basically dampen a lot of, uh, a lot of the reporting. That's something that concerns me. Um, in terms of functioning in, a, in an environment like, uh, like Russia or Turkey, um, I can speak more closely about Russia just because that's where my experience is. Uh, and I do think the environment is changing. I left, I left 14 months ago, and in that time it's changed immensely. Um, but back then what we used to say was what would happen to us is, you know, the threat, the threat of, uh, of deportation or them stripping us of our accreditation. But it's the local journalists that have to deal with uh, the, the really, really serious threats of, of violence and, and jailing. Um, but in terms of functioning in, in that sort of an environment, um, I don't think that that's like a necessarily new problem. There's always been countries that haven't welcomed the press. This thing with this reporter in Turkey was especially disturbing mm-hmm. because she has now been singled out mm-hmm. and she is Turkish. Is your reporter in Turkey Turkish? He's American. Mm. Uh, what, do you, what are they, what does your reporter say about that situation, if I may ask? Well, you know, I mean, Istanbul is also an interesting, uh, an interesting example, and he doesn't actually report on Turkey as such that much. Like, Istanbul's become this new hub. You know, everybody moved from Cairo um, to Istanbul to kind of cover the story. So he's actually done not very much reporting on Turkey in and of itself. He spends a lot of time on the border with Syria. He spent time in Iraq. He went into Syria a little while, well, a while ago now. Um, so actually, he hasn't, he hasn't come up against it, but because maybe because he's covering the story in a different way. And how did the beheadings affect your journalists? I mean, it's, uh, I think it affects any, any journalist. It's such a horrible thing to, to have to see and, and to have to kind of digest. Um, security is something that we've thought about from day one. Um, and we have a security consultant that always deals with our correspondents before they go anywhere, be it Liberia or be it, uh, Iraq. And, um... You know, reporters do what they do, which is pushing to go and do the craziest story. And I just see my job as an editor as <clears throat> oftentimes saying no. Uh, for example, the uh, Mike, who's in Istanbul, um, he wanted to go into Syria of, uh, about a month and a half ago now, I guess. And we looked into it and we studied it and we saw that, you know, maybe if you go this way or that way with this group, then maybe it would be safe. But uh, things changed on the ground at the last minute, kind of, thank God, and we told him that he couldn't go. He stayed at the border, and he got an incredible story. He did a story about um, the first American suicide bomber inside Syria, who was with al-Nusra, not with ISIS, uh, by meeting people at the border who had met this guy, who had known this guy, who had helped him get into Syria from Turkey. Mike was arguing that he had to go to Syria for that story, and the result showed that it didn't necessarily have to be true. It's a lot of weighing risk and rewards, and at this point, the risk just isn't worth like that extra little bit. What's the psychology of a Mike these days? <laughs> I mean, is he young? He is 30, 30. He just turned 30. Is he married? And he has a serious girlfriend who's also a reporter in Istanbul. And he wants to go cover ISIS? <coughs> yeah, but it's the story of the moment. I can understand. I can totally understand. 
you know, 30 is still pretty young. I mean, in, in BuzzFeed terms, it's not, it's not young at all. <laughs> but, but for me, it's still pretty young. And I think that that's, you know, you, you wouldn't necessarily be, uh, he wouldn't be doing what, he, what he's doing, focusing on the region that he focuses on, if he didn't have that drive to want to get every single story. So the fact of this conscious sort of campaign of intimidation by beheading journalists is not something that was a game changer for him. Well, you know, I mean, journalists knew for a long time um, that journalists were being targeted, who was being held. There's a blackout in the media, but people in that circle know, they all know each other. Um, I think a lot of people, you know, we're prepared, because it's been going on for so long, we're kind of prepared for a horrific end. Maybe not the end that we've seen, but... Mm. Yeah. Let me open it up to students. Uh, as I say, if you're a student here, please. Yeah. Hi, I'm Natalie Brand. I'm a mid-career um, MPA, and also I've been a reporter in local television news. So my question, um, my first question is, what, it, what are you noticing about the readership um, of the, the foreign or political articles versus the lighter articles? And then my second question is, when news broke last night about airstrikes, how did you cover that? I was on the train, so that was great. <laughs> um, I'll start with your, with your first one. Are you talking about numbers? Yeah, numbers are just demographic, or who's clicking on that? Um, I mean, it's, it's like this is, this is a, a very full question. Um, let, me, let me see how, which way to go about it. So BuzzFeed does get really, really great numbers. Um, but that's not to say that, like, I count the success of an article based on the numbers. Like, the numbers aren't viewed in a vacuum. So the whole idea is to kind of do, like, smart analysis, I guess, relative analysis of the numbers. So, for example, when you do a post about cats, you think, okay, how many people in the world love cats? And what proportion of those people have read this, this article or looked at this list? Um, until recently, if I, you know, when I thought that way about Syria, now it's, now it's different because people are finally interested, but it was a very grim year um, after Obama's walk back last summer where people just, nobody even wanted to know what was going on in Syria. I think there was an active desire to forget that this conflict was going on. Um, we didn't have a million people reading those articles. What, I, what made me consider a, an article successful was when Mike would do a story and on Twitter I would see you know, like the that devoted um, Syria crowd discussing it and talking about like this piece of information he found or whatever, and that it was making an impact in those circles. So if the numbers at that point were you know thirty thousand or something, it would be a success to me. Um, and then, does that answer your question? Yeah. And is it a different audience, obviously, than the cat lovers? It's. A I think it depends. <laughs> I think it really depends. You know, the the one story that really that kind of. A couple of stories have surprised me. Um, uh, Gina Moore, who's our international women's rights reporter based in Nairobi, went to Sweden and, uh, and did a 4,000-word story about sex work legislation in Sweden. And you'd think this would be a very niche kind of thing, but um, half a million people read that. Uh, then we have somebody who's actually here. I don't, I don't think it, she... I think I'm seeing her afterwards. Kathleen McLaughlin, who was a, a freelancer in... Um, in China, and she did a story for us about an 86-year-old Chinese dissident who's living in Harlem. That got over half a million views. So I think, you know, it's a lot of it is it's about great storytelling. 
It's about hitting at the right time. Sometimes you don't know <laughs> what it is that quite makes it break through. But, um, you know, the numbers vary, but I just don't consider success by numbers. In that, in that uh, as I, I happen to know that this is a, this issue of sex workers is, is of particular importance mm -hmm. here, but um, was this a, an article about legalization or about how it functions in Sweden or what was, or a debate in Sweden? What was the focus of the article? It was about, it was about, um, it's about the debate, and basically she talked to a lot of sex workers about how they felt also about the legislation, because I think, you know, the idea of, like, the Swedish model of... Uh, is it, I don't know, is prostitution legal in, in Sweden? Sex work is, is yeah, it's legislated. Like, it's, it's, so, it's sort of legal. It's more legal <laughs> than it's not legal. I have to go it's back like marijuana in Boston, I think. Something like that. It's a, re it's a really good article. Um, but yeah, she just kind of got at the debate and sp spoke to all sides, and it was really beautifully written. She's a great writer. Other questions? Yes. So I'm just wondering, when you, you've been saying that you're hiring reporters, so then are these full-time employees, mm -hmm. or are they they're not freelancers? Yeah, no, they're not freelancers. They're full-time. They get insurance and benefits, and they're actively discouraged from freelancing sure. for others. And, and how, how is BuzzFeed making money? Uh, there's two ways. So. This latest round of expansion is coming from, uh, we just raised like $50 million in venture capital. So there's a lot of money being raised because BuzzFeed, you know, is like this interesting intersection of media and uh, startup culture. Um, and then the other is we do this thing that, I think our CEO hates the term, but I, I don't know what else to call it, um, native advertising, where we have, so like the office, there's, there's like, you know, there's a strict wall between editorial and business, and even in like the layout of the office, they're completely separate. Um, and then on the business side, there's like there's a creative team, kind of if you think of like what Mad Men was back in the day. So like there's like Mad Men people who work with advertisers to make BuzzFeed-esque content that then goes viral in its own way. It's clearly marked as advertising and stuff like that, <coughs> but it's. Um, Does everybody understand what native advertising is? Okay. No? Well, effectively, native advertising is advertising that's embedded into something that looks like a news story. And it is content that is paid for and is designed to be confused with news, even though it's labeled differently. It's designed to be persuasively, you know, more credible because it looks like news. I don't know. I don't know if that's how I would describe it. Like Come on. on, on our, <laughs> if, you go, if you go to BuzzFeed.com, the, like the, the advertising is, like everything kind of looks like it's in boxes. And uh, the stories are all in white boxes. And the advertising is like in, in yellow boxes. Like, you know, and for me, I hate it. I hate clicking on advertising. But like one friend on Facebook put some like Purina BuzzFeed video thing. And I was like, I don't want to click on it. I don't want to click on it. I love cats. And then I clicked on it, and it was just a really, really great ad. And I think that just the you know kids uh, don't maybe don't have that like hatred of advertising or that feeling like being tricked. You know, like I hate being tricked. Everybody hates being tricked, but for them, it's just they grew up in a in a different internet age, I guess. Yes, I'm Kevin Tan. I'm a second year master in public policy student here. And I'm also starting, uh, we're, we're launching a uh, publication that tries to take serious student theses and turn it into BuzzFeed-type content. Cool. Um, and, we, uh, well, my co-editor here, Xiaowei, is also involved. Um, you've spoken a lot about the value proposition of BuzzFeed foreign, uh, BuzzFeed world being a, a new angle in stories, but I'd like you to speak a bit more about the format uh, mm -hmm. and whether or not you see uh, certain sorts of format more effective 
at cutting through the clutter that's everyday news? Mm -hmm. um, I think it depends on the story. Um, like some of the longer stuff, it'll look a lot more like a traditional news story where, you know, big photo, text, big photo, text, something like that. But for like the shorter news stories, um, well, here's like one example that I thought looked really good in addition to having really good uh, information was our guy Max Seddon, who's in Kiev. Um, this is a really good example just of a, of a different kind of BuzzFeed story, I guess, also. Um, he found that there was a soldier, a Russian soldier, who was like Instagramming Instagramming like inside his, you know, his armored personnel carrier and just like kind of Instagramming his life and Instagram has geotags and so by analyzing the geotags he found that that Russian soldier was actually in Ukraine and this was before the past couple of months where it's become accepted knowledge that there are Russian troops inside Ukraine so this was a pretty controversial story. Um, but, you know, the way that he did it, I just, I kind of, those kinds of stories I just like how it looks where it's like the text goes on top of the photo. I think it just makes it a lot easier to read where you don't need these like heavy, heavy blocks of text. Sometimes if you, there's actually a website that does this um, in a humorous way. Uh, it takes out all the photos from BuzzFeed and just keeps the text uh, so that it reads like a straight up story. And you know, there is coherence to it. And sometimes they can run to like 800, 1000 words, which is the length of uh, your average news story. So I don't know. I think that kind of stuff can make it easier to read and just we, I love having like images and video and tweets and whatever, just anything that makes it um, more of a wholesome experience, I guess. Do you, do you ever take a, a long-form news story from another legacy site and condense it down to something that's, you know, the 10 things you need to know about Syria, number six is a killer, uh, which I've actually seen on Vox, so I wonder whether... Yeah, that's a Vox thing. No, I mean... There's like we have a news team who who will do some of like the aggregating and stuff like that, but on my team we don't really do that. Thank you. Yes. Um, so I'm curious about how you are able to use the insights that BuzzFeed has gained about you know how things go viral and how um, stories are spread um, in your work. Like how do you sort of marry this you know, old school serious journalistic journalistic approach? with the insights that have been gained through, you know, very different mm -hmm. uh, I'll give you one example. Like, one thing I've learned uh, from, actually from a reporter on the news team who um, just, yeah, he, he's young and gets the internet in a way that I'll, I don't, I don't know if I'll ever get the internet. Um, and, you know, I know that BuzzFeed gets teased a lot for, like, clickbait um, headlines. But uh, one of the lessons that he taught me was, like, if in, you don't want to, you don't want to trick the reader and if you just kind of put everything out there in the headline then that that is more likely to spread farther and, and wider I think one of the one of the, the key lessons also is just this whole like not lying thing so if you say you know oh I don't know if we've ever done this for news stories but the idea you know oh like these are the most tragic photos you will ever see of <coughs> refugees fleeing Syria like they actually have to be the most the most tragic you know what I mean it kind of has to line up I guess nobody wants to feel like they haven't, that you haven't delivered on what you've promised, I guess. Just to follow up on that briefly, I, I agree with you that a lot of what BuzzFeed does is pretty traditional, but it does use a lot of these curiosity gap headlines. And could you say more about how you feel that changes the way that readers enter the story or changes the way, the kinds of feedback that you get as a reporter or as an editor? Um, I think... I mean, I think that those headlines are 
are criticized maybe without like giving giving a lot of thought to why they exist. So for example, I woke up this morning and my deputy who's in London had published a fantastic story from Mike in Istanbul. Um, it was more of like a commentary on looking at the different groups that are being targeted inside Syria with these airstrikes. And the headline was something like, uh, with, with airstrikes, US, U.S. gets embroiled in complex Syrian civil war. Like, would you open that? Really? I wouldn't open that. You know, so then we just changed it to, you know, who, who is the U.S. actually bombing in Syria? Would you open that? I would. To me, the, the only important thing is that people are reading the words in the article and whatever gets them there makes me happy. I'm not sure that it changes how people engage with the content of the writing. It, it, seems, it, it, it seems to be a double-edged sword. On the one hand, a lot of, there's, there's literally less information in the headline. You can't scan the headlines and know the kernel of the article. At the same time, it's absolutely true that it does make people more likely to click, to go and, and, and actually read through the piece. Mm -hmm. um, so it seems like it's a, it's a real trade-off in terms of... It's a, but it's a cultural thing for the web, not for traditional media. Yeah, and I and wonder and if it's, it's one of the uh, it's it's one of the single biggest differences between. Well, I just them. wonder if legacy. Do you see legacy media online going to those kinds of headlines? Well, I mean, look at what ha if you followed what happened with um, with the, like the New York Times during the Gaza War, for example, when they put out some head you know the headline when the four children were killed on a, on the beach. Do you guys remember that? And the headline was like in Gaza, a missile finds. I don't even remember what the what the object was. Um, and they got so much criticism, you know, that they had to kind of flip it around and, and talk about what was actually happening in the article, which is, you know, missile kills children. Um, I think, but more broadly, I think this is a question of distribution. You know, back in the day, people got, you know, like when I woke up in the hotel today and there was like a New York Times at, at my doorstep and I don't have to kind of pick and choose what I want to read. You know, it's, it's all there before me. It's one finished product. Um, but right now we have to we just have to we have to break through somehow this mess of uh, of internet and social media and the best way to do that is with I think like clear headlines that also grab you and, and traditional media outlets that have tried to do this have gotten pushback so not just the Times so um, lots of other papers that have tried to do this have had similar experiences mm -hmm. yeah. yes. Uh, okay. Okay. Before, actually, There's so many I, I, you can't see me from here. Um, hi, I'm uh, I'm Lauren Penny. I'm a Neiman Fellow. Um, I'm I'm wondering what I found. So I work writing sort of viral style content for a more traditional outlet. And one of the things I found it really, really, uh, or over the past few years, I found it really, really difficult to get sort of traditional paper editors to understand is that people don't go to their homepage first. Mm. People go to people follow. That links to the content and the traffic comes from there, mm -hmm. and um, and it's much more based on interest groups or niche groups. So I, I know you know this, but, mm -hmm. um, and I was wondering if you could say a little more about mainly to persuade me that I'm not going crazy mm. um, about how that works in terms of creating really awesome content and making you know how that changes the journalism model because. You know, people. I mean, I sometimes go to places and see what's on there, but people would more like follow a link and then you're at the site. Right. Um, 
I think, I mean, to me, like, this is one of the biggest differences between um, legacy organizations and, you know, quote-unquote, uh, new media, where um, places like the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal and the Post, rightly so, you know, they have um, incredible reputations that ensure them readers, older readers at least. Um, the thing is that the way that younger readers are approaching media now is not necessarily that they have, not even not necessarily, They do, it's not like they have their paper of choice. It's not, you know, like they are just avid, um, I don't know, Financial Times readers, although the FT is is maybe in a class on its own. Um, and so the, the whole point is just, like I said, is just kind of like breaking through um, and making sure, like the, the more people see your story, um, the more than even more people see your story. And just every, <clears throat> the way that I also think about it is that if we just write like the basic the basic news story, what, what has come to be thought of as the basic news story, which is like the 800 word roundup of like what happened in Turkey today, for example, I don't think that a lot of people will read the BuzzFeed story over the Reuters story or the New York Times story. I mean, well, let, let me ask you about it because this is, I know that I'm, I have confusion about this. John Whibby's in the room and he just did a, a paper on how people use news sites. Mm -hmm. And one of the things, and correct me if I'm misrepresenting you, John, was that in fact people do, young people too, do go to news sites. They go to the site. They don't necessarily come in from the side as much as I think the, the sort of the the, the the legend has it at least right now. Uh, if you look at BuzzFeed, do people overwhelmingly, especially millennials, not go to BuzzFeed.com? They only come in from the side for, because somebody else is streaming something or they see it on Twitter? Not only, but yeah, 75, overwhelmingly. 75 percent come from social media. John, how does that stack up with what you were? I mean, I, so, I wouldn't dispute very data, I mean, because she has the analytics, and I think it's great, it's changing, but, um, you know, the American Press Institute's most recent look at this said that, um, you know, uh, traditional, even among young people who have different habits than older people in terms of news consumption, um, it's still the case that they do go directly to sites and still do access news through traditional methods. It's just a hybrid. So they're, get, they're, they're, doing, they're getting a lot of stuff through Twitter and, and, and uh, Facebook feeds, but they're also, they have a few sites that they bookmark and they go regularly to, and they do watch CNN, and so it's just more of a jumble, and uh, so, I, you know, I think, the interesting thing about the, the Times report, uh, the, I forget, what, what was it called, the, their digital... The innovation, innovation report. Um, you know, people have said the homepage is dead, but if you actually looked, it said that something like 15% of all, you know, traffic for the New York Times was coming from social. So there is a degree of hype. I mean, I think in your, with your organization, absolutely true. I mean, but, but BuzzFeed is, is a way leading indicator possibly in the future, but some of the data is mixed. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. That's interesting. Yeah. Hi, uh, I'm Yehuz Baidar from Istanbul, Sean Steen Fellow, and um, also co-founder of a platform from independent journalism. We do a lot of training uh, mm -hmm. for, for social media, mm -hmm. uh, or social media awareness and literacy, etc. Uh, it's interesting to see the evolution uh, in key countries, two key countries, Egypt and Turkey, uh, also Syria in the middle, of course, as the story goldmine. Um, in terms of Turkey, uh, it has come up to the top three in usage of Twitter in terms of penetration mm -hmm. to the number of, and according to FT, it's now number one in the world, mm -hmm. followed closely by Netherlands and Japan. 
U.S. coming down in the top, you know, first ten, and also top three in Facebook. Mm -hmm. So uh, lots of fun stories are happening. You know, when the when Turkish government banned social media first, uh, YouTube and then Twitter. Mm -hmm. uh, the, the fun story was that they had forgotten to deal with iOS and Android applications. Yeah. So it took only half an hour for the, for the kids to, yeah. to, to continue the business as usual. The same thing with Twitter. Uh, they had forgotten about uh, mobile Twitter, so mm -hmm. everybody downloaded Opera and mm -hmm. just continued. So it's an interesting development there. The tech savviness in a country like that, of course, makes alternative news sources very interesting. Whereas in Egypt, Twitter doesn't seem to be very popular. Uh, you know, in terms of Gezi Park protests and Tahrir protests, almost 70% of the tweets were coming from within Turkey, whereas in Egypt it was Outside. up to mm -hmm. maybe 30%. Uh, what does it say to us in terms of different sort of uh, social media evolutions? And also, you know, what sort of target audience from your vantage point, you know, when you are reporting to hear, but are you interested in sort of mergers in different languages? Because there's a potential out there. Totally. Uh, definitely. And it's a new media and people in the lack of uh, other conventional sources are hungry for information and hungry for delivering information yeah. and horizontalizing the news gathering. That's, I think, interesting to hear your insights about. And also... Where do you see this the, the future uh, in terms of you know looking at Russia, Ukraine, Syria, Turkey? Not Syria, but the Turkey. And, <coughs> and second question is of course the the business models. You know you you have Vice, you have you, and one has also Global Post, etc. Are you operating on different business models? Uh, uh, it would be interesting to hear about these as well. Okay, where to begin? Um, well, first I'll talk uh, a little bit about so. BuzzFeed has like another expansion strategy, which is I think speaks to um, your point about audiences in country. Um, so we are also opening kind of local BuzzFeeds, I guess. It started in uh, the UK and then Australia, and now we have um, in Brazil, Argentina, France, and BuzzFeed India just started. Which oh, and then BuzzFeed Germany just started. Um, and so the idea is to you know that. People like to talk about this like global internet culture, but actually um, there remain very like localized habits and cultural references and this, that, and the other. So, um, you know, something that might be really funny or really interesting to someone in Brazil won't necessarily be funny or interesting to somebody sitting in Boston. Um, so the idea is to is to also expand that way. It starts with entertainment coverage, with the kind of cultural the cat coverage, uh, and then expand. Everybody likes cat. <laughs> right? And then, and then, you know, hopefully we'll expand into, um, into the more news side. That's kind of like the BuzzFeed expansion model. Um, but then also, you know, I do think um, just the internet changes, like, who, who is reading you and how they're reading you. So Max, for example, our fantastic reporter who's in Kiev right now, um, whose Russian is better than, like, a lot of native speakers, uh, when he writes, he also keeps uh, his Russian language audience in mind. Um, he, you know, he loves to break news that is also new to to Russian readers, and it's a really great way for us to build our name as well because it gets us. We've even been cited by like the Russian state-run news, which is in, 
kind of crazy to me. Um, so there, there's, yeah, there's that. And then, I'm sorry, I forgot what was this? Business the model. business model. Yeah. So I don't, I don't deal with the business side all that much, but uh, it's, it's, it's what I said. It's like raising, you know, raising money. And I know the vice does it that way. Are they your rivals? Um, I, I consider everybody our rival. <laughs> <laughs> well, who's your biggest rival? Are you going to try to start a new media no, war? No, no, no. <laughs> I'm just curious about where you, when you look over your shoulder or you look up ahead, who do you see? I, like for me personally, I look at like the, a lot of the legacy organizations because you see a lot of the, um, the people that BuzzFeed will often be cited with who I don't think is necessarily a fair comparison. I'm looking at people who have, like particularly because I deal with the foreign desk, um, I, I look at organizations that maintain bureaus abroad and that's not necessarily you know the voxes um, or the mashables of the world it's more the you know the new york times is of the world yes um, my name is matt kennedy i'm one of the national security fellows and also an army officer um many of legacy uh, news outlets uh, develop reputations for a certain bias or leaning one direction or the other is there a concerted effort on the buzzfeed team to try to stay very balanced or I don't sense that that's happening, and I don't think it will happen. We have, um, like, on the politics team, for example, um, you know, very conservative-leaning uh, folks and very liberal-leaning folks, and I think that's the best way to kind of deal with it. You know, is just to have everybody, everybody represented. Yeah, I don't think so. I hope not. <laughs> yes. So, how did you cover the airstrikes? So, I was on the train. <laughs> uh, well, let's see. So, last night, <coughs> because it happened around, what, like 9 p.m., we just got a breaking news post up and then um, and then uh, did a quick story about, there was this guy who was on Twitter, I don't know if you saw, who, uh, who had heard the strikes like half an hour before the Pentagon announced it, so did a quick thing on who, on who he is. You know, it's kind of the, a very, very loose comparison to the guy uh, who heard like the helicopters during the bin Laden raid. Um, so did a quick thing on him and then this morning is when um, it all kind of went crazy. So as I mentioned we had like a commentary from Mike in Istanbul talking about the various groups. Uh, hopefully while I've been sitting here a story that they've been working on this morning went up which is Rosie Gray, our reporter in DC, was calling around to be like who is this new group that we're supposedly uh, bombing that nobody even heard of like three weeks ago. Um, and then uh, we have two reporters who are in New York who are looking at um, like the, the you know basically jihadi Twitter how jihadi Twitter is is reacting to it and um, then we have Mike who's just filed a story just before I, I got, <coughs> came into this room uh, he just got back from the border with Syria and he had been working on a story about Al Nusra. So he filed it uh, last night, reworked it this morning to make it more relevant to the strikes. So we just go like full force. It's just basically everybody like drops what they're doing and focuses on the story of the moment. Steve, it's a particular pleasure to have you with us today. Do you have a comment or a question? Uh, yeah, I do. But Steve Waldeck, foreign policy and international affairs here. Um, so just to Brief anecdote, I had uh, lunch with a reporter in Washington a couple weeks ago who told me uh, that within the Washington Seal, one of the critical things for journalists there was whether or not they got invited to the White House Correspondents' Dinner, and in particular, 
whether or not they got invited to the after party. And they told me this story by saying that, that they'd been invited two years in a row, and then the third year they weren't invited to the after party. And this was, this was a crushing blow. Right? And I, she used this as an example of this sort of social network of this, particularly Washington, D.C., mm -hmm. right? And so I was wondering, sort of, how does BuzzFeed think of itself within a world that's very incestuous, where access to politicians really matters, where lots of journalists socialize with the people that they're covering in different ways, and in a sense, it becomes rather inbred, and there might even be a tendency to pull punches occasionally, because you want to get that next story. You don't want to be cut off from the interview with a principal or whatever. So does BuzzFeed see itself as part of the establishment, or does it see itself more over in Glenn Greenwald land, uh, very much not part of the establishment? He's not invited to the after party. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'll, I'll so just where, where do you locate, and if you're locating yourself in the first group, how do you not get co-opted? So I'll, I'll use your White House correspondence Dinner analogy and be like, tell you this. So we weren't invited. <laughs> and so we So we started our own party and it has now become the hot ticket. This you know, last year Obama made like a BuzzFeed joke and uh, last this year there was like a BuzzFeed video. So we've just like started our own thing, which I think is a nice uh, analogy for how we how we do approach uh, those in power. I think um, it's kind of accepted now that a lot of the DC journalism scene has become way too, uh, way too deferential. Um, I don't know if I would, you know, choose one side of the spectrum of like uh, CNN or Glenn Greenwald, um, but I think it's definitely um, there's a definite understanding that our role as journalists is to challenge government and. In terms of holding on to sources, um, so uh, until he died tragically last year, Mike Hastings uh, was working at BuzzFeed, a reporter best known for his Rolling Stone story, uh, Bringing Down Stanley McChrystal. And, uh, you know, he had given a lot of thought to this and had given talks about this and um, was criticized a lot for that story, in mainly by other journalists who thought that he wasn't following the rules. You know, that when you're drinking with a government official, you're not working and you shouldn't report on that when obviously drinking should be an essential part of any reporting experience. <laughs> um, it usually is, yes. And, uh, you know, and the sources kept coming back to him. So I think it's like, it's a fallacy maybe to think that, um, that a source will never talk to you again if you actually report on what's happening. The, the goal is to make BuzzFeed, and I think it's working, especially on the politics side in DC where we are a really big presence, you know, in those circles. Um, to make yourself so essential that it's not like they can not talk to you again. You know, I, I'm sure, I think Greenwald talks about this in his book when, uh, you know, when uh, the government started threatening Janine Gibson, the editor then of The Guardian US, with like, if you guys run this story, uh, we're cutting all access. She's like, you never gave us any access anyway. Like, what are we going to lose? You know, so I think it's more that kind of let me, get, let, let me clarify something. Is BuzzFeed not allowed to buy a table at the White House Correspondence Dinner? I know that we weren't invited, like when we started this party. Um, I don't, I, were we invited last year? I thought. I mean, I'm the after sure. we party went to versus party. the dinner. I mean, there's the dinner, <laughs> and I think you can just buy a table for that. You don't have to be invited to that. I, I think you do. Well, I don't know. Maybe you do. I think you do. But you weren't I'm even sure. invited to buy a table. <laughs> That's like being shunned. 
I know a couple years. I know a couple years ago we weren't. I'm not. I'm not sure about this year. But we had a party at the same time um, at a bar on 18th Street with Facebook, and it was really fun. Uh -huh. Alex, let's try and buy a table. <laughs> <laughs> Come to I the like BuzzFeed party, John. Yeah. Uh, it's interesting that we just brought up Professor Walt because I was. I'm just going through the articles of BuzzFeed and looking at how much you guys draw on expertise. Um, and I was thinking, you couldn't find a Washington Post or New York Times or AP article where they didn't quote somebody from Brookings or somebody from Belfer or somebody from... And you guys, um, you know, there actually is a Rosie Gray article quoting Professor Walt uh, just a few days ago. So you you, you do that. <laughs> from, um, and, you, and you and Miriam wrote a wonderful article with all this historical background context on Putin. Mm -hmm. um, but it seems strategic in some way to just say the world of research is not part of what we do, um, more so than the old outlets. Hmm. Is that, am I right? I just took a random sample for That's interesting. Um, We've actually talked uh, a lot about the use of uh, experts and analysts, and, uh, and I was definitely guilty of this back when I was, you know, reporting more than I do now, which is sometimes, you know, you think something about Kremlin strategy, um, but you don't want to like say it yourself so you call an analyst and you get like a nice quote and to me it's just that's not that's not useful like the the point of talking to people is to get information not to get a pretty quote and um, I think the reporters that we have um, are experts in their field and in certain cases they can speak with a certain degree of authority so yeah, we have discussed that actually. I'm not saying that like research doesn't matter. They all read these papers and stuff, and they talk to people. But um, but it's it's I think that the use of like this expert said um, is a little too widespread in a lot of the media. Bill Mitchell, former fellow here, I, I was struck by what you said about discouraging uh, staffers from freelancing mm -hmm. uh, in the context of Matt Bai's New York Times Magazine piece on the. Miami Herald stakeout of Gary Hart. Mm -hmm. You're here by a former Times correspondent now working for Yahoo Politics has this blockbuster piece and it appears not at his new home but his old home. But then as I thought about it, uh, it, it certainly got me more interested in Yahoo Politics. Mm -hmm. And I wonder how you view kind of the potential for not exactly collaboration but uh, that sort of um, cross-publishing. Mm -hmm. Let me, one question, Bill. Do you know whether that was a first serial rights deal? Because he's got a book coming in. I don't. I don't. Because that could, that, that could be a different kind of thing than a freelance piece, if you see what I mean. They could have had a contractual deal to do that, yeah. that story. I, I don't know the answer. Huh. So you mean like, publish, like publishing in other outlets in order to like raise our reputation? Yeah. Yeah, or for whatever purpose. It might be reputational, it might be... You, you, your guess is that the strongest readership for this piece lies elsewhere, but mm. in the long term it doesn't really disadvantage you. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, I think we, we've had a couple of publishing partnerships. We published something from ProPublica, you know, who does fantastic investigations, but just doesn't have, doesn't like break through to the to the main to the mainstream readership a lot. Um, on my side, like we just deal with a lot of uh, a lot of requests to translate the stories back into into home languages. Like we're just starting something with Courrier International, the French, um, I guess, journal magazine that uh, translates stories. I don't know. That's interesting. Mm -hmm. Maybe. <coughs> yes. No, 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 let me. 
one to a customer until we <laughs> go through. Yeah, John. Okay. Um, question. It fascinated me. Oh, I'm John Geddes, a Schoenstein fellow. I was managing editor of the New York Times for a while. Um, you have lots of statistics. You have lots of data. Mm -hmm. You publish a 4,000-word article, and you mention views. How many people got to the bottom of that article? Most. We Most? have, yeah, we have the metrics. It doesn't always happen. That story, to me, is just a fantastic example because it was also surprising to me. Maybe it shouldn't have been. Um, but, yeah, to, in that one, we, ch we checked. I don't check them on every story. In that one, we checked, and it was most. I can't, I don't remember exactly. I can look it up. To but get that to the bottom of a 4,000-word well. article is a tough sell no matter what, who's publishing it. Yeah, I don't know. It if it's about sex workers. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm just being blunt. But, it's just being blunt. But, like, it's sex work legislation, yeah, you know? Yeah, but no, 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 no. What did the headline say? I don't remember. I, I I'm sure sex is in the headline. It seems to me that we have a new model of operational model for, for uh, foreign correspondents, particularly in areas like minefields, like, mm. like Syria, where, you know, the risk is death. Mm -hmm. um, and it's not like Bosnia, covering Bosnia. Mm -hmm. War correspondence has changed character mm -hmm. now because it's much more severe. Uh, and this model is more based on being, the reporter himself or herself being less on the ground, on the field of minefield, uh, rather than, you know, rather he or she chooses to rely on, on uh, uh, digital sources, uh, social media, local sources, etc., etc., because you are discouraging. You know, main outlets, commercial outlets are discouraging dramatically people not going there. You yeah. know, I haven't seen Gaid Al Had going to, for example, to Syria for lately. For and, the Times, uh, the Times has people and some yeah, people in but is that a, am I am I right in seeing well, this kind of pattern? Mm, the thing is, you know, there's other. I think there's other ways to do the story. I, I talked to Mike like early on. And I, I said that, you know, it's we're not going to be sending you in there every other day, so maybe you should, you know, hang out on Twitter more. He's not like a big, or he wasn't a big Twitter fan. He's become a bigger Twitter fan. Uh, that's not what he's into. We have a couple of reporters in New York who are very, very into the social media side of, and particularly with ISIS, it's such an important story. You see everybody covering it because their social media strategy is so, uh, so present. Um, but I think there's like there's other ways to do it, and this isn't just a BuzzFeed problem, and it's a specifically Syria problem. You know, sending reporters to war zones like Ukraine and Iraq, it's not. There's yeah, we still do that. You know, Syria is its own problem for uh, all organizations. But there's, <clears throat> as I find with Mike, I think there's a lot of reporting to be done on the border, and that's just where he spends most of his time right now. Oh, there's someone. Yes, Dorothy. Dorothy's in school. I want to go back to the 4,000-word article about Gary Hart mm -hmm. uh, for a number of reasons and find out what people are reading now. For a decade, until 2001, I did a monthly column for the London Times Higher Education Supplement. I began at 1,500 words, then I was reduced to 1,200, and then they did a study, and they discovered that the largest readers were academics, they wanted to be able to read an article in the length of time it took to have morning coffee in the faculty room, mm -hmm. and that was 800 words. Mm -hmm. Now, this is a slow rise of the internet. It was an era I was still getting royalties for these articles mm -hmm. uh, gone quite quickly. And now I'm wondering what people face with so many more choices 
I, I wanted to answer the question about Gary Hart. I read the beginning and the end, and I'll go back at some point and read the middle. But how are people reading, and how many words? And is there an optimal BuzzFeed length? So the way... Um, like, there's no magic formula. There's no, you know, magic formula for headlines, for word count, for anything like that. The way that I think about word length, for example, in as much as I do, is um, we do two kinds of stories. And this also, I think, speaks to what the story is about, in addition to how long or short it is. So we'll do, like, the little stories. Short, super short. You just need a fast piece of information. So the example I mentioned with uh, Putin writing the op-ed, I think the story that came out of that, um, about the PR firm, was like 300 words, nothing, just like whatever. Mm -hmm. And then we do really, really long stories. We also have a long-form section that does like 8,000, 9,000 word stories. So to me, that's what I, what I kind of want to see. I want to see short stories that have bits of information, and I want to see like New Yorker-style things where I feel like I'm living this mm -hmm. story. And I don't think there's that much room for, like, the middle ground. I mean, that said, when something is going crazy like uh, Ukraine or Syria and we get some new, uh, a very, a new story mm -hmm. and everything, it has to be complete, it has to be new, um, then, you know, things will be, like, 1,200 or 2,000 words or something. But I think th just the idea is that, like, the middle ground is, is kind of death. So, like, that roundup story of, like, this is what happened in Ukraine today. We will ne we, we'll never do that story. Mm -hmm. Dorothy, if I may answer this in a different kind of way, Tina Brown had a response to this issue. Mm -hmm. uh, that, this is back when she was uh, at Vanity Fair and then at the New Yorker, and, and USA Today was, you know, making a big thing about how there were no breaks and there was a big issue of how long and people mm -hmm. would go to. Blah, blah, blah. And so she was asked to speak to a newspaper publishers convention. She got up in front of them and said, "You know, the problem is it's not length of stories and how short and how long, whatever. You're editing them wrong." You need to edit your stories for women. And you could see this group of gray, you know, <laughs> older men going, oh, holy <laughs> shit. And she said, no, 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 you don't understand. The issue isn't length. The issue is how you think. Men want to know what happened. Women, she said, want to know what really happened. <laughs> yeah. Fantastic way of putting it. <laughs> yeah. Oh, and then Celestine. Um, what are your uh, competitors, the legacy news outlets' uh, reaction to the growth of BuzzFeed? Everybody, you know, so my editor-in-chief organized a dinner for me when I first uh, came back to New York and started this job, and there were people from, there's like the former foreign editor of the New York Times and uh, a whole bunch of people, and I think it's been really sad for journalism to see foreign bureaus close. When I was in Moscow, one of the you know I went to like the Newsweek bureau closing party, and it's horrible. Nobody wants to see it. Um, so it's actually been really, really encouraging. Really encouraging. I have really good relationships with people like from all sorts of, of, of papers. It's really nice. Celestine. Um, Celestine um, former foreign correspondent mm -hmm. in Russia as well. The th question is, how much do you assume do that people are actually reading the legacy journals for one of another word or perhaps, mm -hmm. you know, experts? When you say you don't do the roundup in Ukraine, mm -hmm. uh, presumably you're not also in your story saying as a reminder, as a standard New York Times thing would be, you know, in the three months since, you know, the, uh, you know some yeah. kind of a catch-up paragraph for the news. So, I mean, two questions on that. One, do you assume 
a lot of knowledge on the part of your readers in a case like that? And secondly, what is the role of the editor? I mean, it must be different from what it is for The Guardian or for The New York Times. Well, on the first thing, you know, it depends. On the, if there's like a, you know, if, if it's one of these more in-depth stories, then we will say, you know, X thousand number of people are said to have been killed in such and such months. Or we'll remind, you know, the flight of uh, former President Yanukovych, blah, 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 blah. So it's not that we don't do that, but yeah, there's a lot of stories where we don't. And I think, um, I think uh, it's not that we assume a lot of knowledge necessarily, although sometimes we do. I, like if we're just jumping into the story of the moment, and you kind of know that this is a story that like policy wonks really want to read, like that's a totally valid audience. I don't think that we always think like, okay, every single story we write must reach everybody in the world. You know, so sometimes there are the stories that we just write for like a little corner of DC or a little corner of Moscow. And um, so in that case, we won't do it. And then I think there's like, there's a belief uh, in, in cross-referencing. Um, and wait, what was the second one? I forgot I know, just the Oh, the editor. the editor. I don't know, because I've never been an editor before. No, no, but I mean, in other words, <laughs> when you were writing for, for The Guardian, you know, they might have said, no, wait a minute, you didn't explain this. Or the writing in the, you know, yeah. isn't good, or the grammar isn't good, or something. I mean, do you feel... And who writes the headlines? Do you take a, do you take a mm -hmm. much, uh, do you have a lighter foot? As editors, it depends on the story. It's no, it depends on the story. Um, the biggest difference I find is that I would get calls in Moscow all the time, like the Telegraph has this story. You know, can you do it? And I would, just, but the Telegraph did it. I don't understand why I have to do it. Everybody's reading the Telegraph version. Maybe I should go back to my enterprise reporting that I, you know, that I'm working on. Um, but in terms of no, I, you know, some stories are really lightly edited. The ones that are, you know, little bits of information they don't have to read. Beautifully, they just need to get the the news out there. But um, some of the stories, like Mike's story on the American suicide bomber in Syria, I think that went through like four edits or something. It depends. It depends. And who writes the headlines? Uh, I I hate writing headlines, so I ask my writers to do it. Um, but then sometimes I have to jump in and do it. Likewise, I just hate right. writing headlines. Do you just write one, or do you write a whole stable of headlines and then you pick? We actually have a thing, it's called FlexPro, where we'll write like the main headline and then we can do a testing for other headlines and then whichever one is best uh, stays after, after like 24 hours. Miriam, thank you very much. Thank you.